Welcome back, all you filth enthusiasts and exploitation hounds. Yes, that's right, it's me, Andy Roberts, with another dose of nasty pasty goodness. This is the show which trawls through the vast VHS catalogues of the 1980s in Britain before we had any formal censorship or state legislation to find films which are visually, narratively or structurally similar to the fabled video nasties. For those of you who don't know what these are already, they're a British concoction with no clearly established definition, other than that they're horror films that certain busybodies, politicians and government officials felt were so obscenely violent that they were too unacceptable for public access. They threw the tried-and-tested think-of-the-children argument into the debacle, aided by the tabloid newspapers who took it upon themselves to irresponsibly link the videos to various crimes being committed across the country. It got really stupid as well, such as linking pony mutilations to video nasty viewings, and even linking a shoelace strangulation to the opening of zombie flesh-eaters, where a corpse rises whilst tied up in twine and tarpaulin. With stuff like Cannibal Holocaust, The Evil Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Thing being seized from the shelves by the police forces, on the instruction of the Director of Public Prosecutions of course, the situation eventually culminated in the Video Recordings Act 1984, which automatically rendered any film illegal if it was not first submitted to the British Board of Film Classification and authorised for release. Unfortunately, this usually meant that the film was censored in order to be approved, especially in the case of horror films, which accounted for almost all of the censor cuts in the UK from 1985 when the law was enacted up until 1999, when the BBFC changed its rules significantly. Any of the films that were seized by the police pretty much disappeared, and they were unavailable for many years, but by today's standards, you realise that so many other films were just as obscene as the nasty films themselves. Why weren't the government consistent in their application of this damning title of The Video Nasty? That's what this podcast is technically all about, looking at films similar to The Nasties which somehow escaped the witch hunt of the 1980s. As is usual, I cover two films with the same theme, and after having a brief week off to do some decorating, we're picking right back up where we left off on the subject of post-apocalyptic action. Though this week, the two examples are courtesy of famous filth fan Joe D'Amato himself. He's usually known for his erotic softcore films, hardcore pornography, and excessively bloody splatter films, two of which actually became video nasties themselves. Those two films are 2020 Texas Gladiators, released in 1982, and Endgame Bronx's Final Fight, released the following year in 1983. So without much further ado, let's delve into 2020 Texas Gladiators.
2020, the world has been reduced to a lawless rubble, overpopulated by vicious gangs. One such gang, the Rangers, raid a couple of derelict buildings and kill any opposition in their way when they happen upon a large gang of degenerates who have captured a pair of nuns and a priest. Mocking the priest with his own crucifix, they crucify the man, whilst one of the nuns is sexually assaulted. The other one, unable to comprehend what's happening to them, commits suicide with a shard of glass. Intervening, the rangers shoot at the perpetrators, causing the majority of them to flee, whilst taking care of the stragglers with melee brutality and sticks of dynamite. The group, consisting of leader Nexus, Jab, Catchdog, Halicron and Red Wolf, split up to search the area for anyone else living. Jab barely avoids an attack by a straggler, whilst Catchdog finds a frightened blonde girl hiding in one of the rooms. Instead of helping her, however, he tries to rape her, causing leader Nexus to intervene and attack him, knocking him out. The others arrive, with Halicron decrying him for breaking one of their rules, banishing him from the rangers completely, whilst Nexus tends to the girl who's named Maida, who's completely pacifistic and believes in reconstructing society. Many years later, Nexus, Maida and their young daughter Katya are living peacefully in Freetown, where they live in more civilised structures with basic access to resources. Working for a professor who's working on upgrading their technology, Nexus has to prevent an explosive event when a valve malfunctions, unaware that outside the town, a gang led by Catchdog awaits. He successfully stops the explosion from happening, just as the gang outside attempt an invasion of the town. Nexus and the others take positions at the barricade, defending themselves against the intruders with gunfire. Fending the majority off successfully, Nexus notices Catchdog in the distance using a sniper rifle scope, and shoots his girlfriend in the head, angering him severely. When he and his cronies drive off, the town is then approached by a sinister black van, from which emerges several helmeted foot soldiers, protected by high-tech shields which repel the townies' gunfire. In the ensuing crossfire, Nexus is shot, with the invading soldiers and biker gangs invading the town fully. The men in the town are systematically killed or tortured, whilst the women are abused and captured. Nexus, meanwhile, recovers from his injury and heads back into town, reuniting with Maida and Katya. It's short-lived, however, when the trio are captured by Catchdog, and one of his right-hand men, Eyepatch, who has Nexus tied up, forces him to watch while he rapes Maida. After this, the entirety of the survivors are addressed by Catchdog's superior, the fascistic Black One, who believes in controlling absolute power, especially over the town's resources. During the address, Nexus breaks free of his restraints, and spying the man who raped Maida next to her, flies into a berserk rage and stabs him to death in a frenzy, causing Black One's guards to send a fusillade of bullets his way, instantly killing him as Maida cries out in despair. An unknown amount of time later, Freetown has become a large den of gambling and drinking, with the townspeople becoming slaves under the regime's control. One night, Jab and Halicron infiltrate a bar and notice Maida under the ownership of a prominent gambler, with a penchant for Russian roulette. Deciding to gamble to save her life, Maida's owner loses the game by shooting himself, leading to a minor brawl as the pair retrieve her. Unfortunately, the two are arrested for their destruction of the bar, sending them to work in the mines as punishment. Red Wolf, however, turns up and rescues the miners from their plight, reuniting with Maida and escaping on a truck. 
They're pursued by Catchdog and his cronies, who assail them with gunfire before planning to crush the rangers by causing a rockfall. Halakron promises Maeda that they will find Katya and get revenge on Black One at the same time, just before Catchdog detonates a set of explosives, causing cave-ins near the rangers. Thankfully, they avoid death by leaving their dog tags behind and tricking their pursuers, managing to make it to nearby woodlands where they slowly become aware that they're being followed. Soon encountering a Native American tribe, the rangers ask for their help in providing some manpower. Ultimately convincing them to join their quest through a successful bout of pugilism, the rangers head straight for Freetown where Big Catch and his biker gang engage with the heroes. After a large gunfight ensues, Black One's shielded foot soldiers enter the battlefield ready to turn the tide. But soon, a large group of the Native Americans arrive on horseback and easily defeat them using common throwing spears and bows and arrows. The rangers enter the town during the ensuing chaos, killing stray bikers who are left behind, whilst Maida and Halakron kill Catchdog using their guns. As Maida, Halakron and Jab reunite, Jab is suddenly shot dead by some surviving foot soldiers, while the pair continue on to encounter Black One protected by one of his soldiers' thermal shields. Red Wolf, however, manages to distract him with gunfire, allowing Halakron to throw a hatchet into his chest and ultimately killing him. As all the imprisoned townspeople are set free, the Professor reunites Katya with her mother, as Halakron and Red Wolf leave town on horseback with the rest of the Native Americans. Follow. I'll protect you. No need to be afraid of me. You're a man who has blood on his hands. Go away. Every man you meet has blood on his hands nowadays. You've got to be strong in a world without laws. Ruthless, too. You've got to fight and fight hard to make this planet a safe place to live in. Only the strong can have peace. No, the law has gone, and killing isn't the way to bring it back. Justice to you is, is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, like it says in the scriptures. That doesn't help build a new civilization. For you, the answer is destruction, but there are those who construct you. You wouldn't be alive now if we hadn't come here to kill your enemies to save your life. I appreciate that, and I shall always be grateful to you for it. Always. Only I'll never understand how you... Justify murder. A man who kills must die. A man who kills a killer is a killer. You don't look like you'd kill anybody. Not the way your friends do. Their eyes are cold. Not like yours. You have feelings. And you have a way, a look that's trustworthy. Tell me what your name is. Maida. And yours? Nexus. Where can I find these people you mentioned? Construct. I'll take you there. It's only three days away. It'd be a new experience. Will it? I'll show you a world with a future. Quite a surprising mixture of lots of different 80s action movie tropes. 2020 Texas Gladiators is a 1982 post-apocalyptic movie from Italian sleazemeister Joe D'Amato. Whilst his usual remit involves lots of bloody violence and varying levels of sexual shenanigans, this film is slightly deviated from that whole avenue, 
And while it's not completely lacking in some violence and sexual themes, they're certainly far less pronounced than the usual D'Amato flick. In this instance, though, that's really not too bad of a deviation, as we get a slightly different flavour of D'Amato's cinematography, a different portrayal of characters, and an alternate vision of a post-apocalyptic world. First impressions are certainly lasting impressions, and it's pretty violent right from the get-go, with a knife going into someone's head within the first ten seconds of the opening. Apart from the violence, another huge offering in front of our eyes is the surplus amount of macho-ness and glistening muscle on display at the beginning. The rangers specifically are incarnations of testosterone, sweating profusely, wearing army khakis and bandoliers with knives and machetes. Clearly taking a cue from First Blood, which came out the same year, the rangers are dressed up like various takes on John Rambo, while the aesthetic of the setting is incredibly Mad Max-esque. The derelict scabs and scavengers are also akin to the generic mutant wastelanders that you'd expect from films like this, with nothing too unique about them. But just as you think that the whole film is going to go with this skin, shall we say, it changes tactic quite quickly after Maida is rescued. The action then relocates to Freetown, which eschews any of the grimy, dark, irradiated cosmetics, and instead depicts a more lively, but a post-apocalyptic setting nonetheless. It takes its inspiration from a more Western perspective, really. The vision of Freetown mixes together those traditional old-world-style clothes and buildings from spaghetti thrillers, and also a strange steampunk kind of vibe with steam-powered technologies and slightly near-futuristic gadgets. This does veer into the rather amusing, though, such as seeing those trap spikes that we spotted in 2019 after the fall of New York, being used as a trap on the outskirts of town, or boxes humorously marked as Danger Explosive with a massive spelling error. The more traditional 80s post-apocalyptic biker tropes begin to pour in with the arrival of Black One, Catchdog and their brood of fighters, who are quite varied in their portrayal, really. There's a very burly man, for example, who's got a thing for young, twinky-looking boys, forcing him on his knees in front of his grandmother and taking his shirt off. There's a very voluptuous woman who tenderly takes a musical charm necklace from an old man before shooting him. And then we have a black chick who's played by the awesome Giretta Giretta, who does some martial arts moves on a guy before throwing him into an electrical panel, electrocuting him to death. It's all very cheesy, very stereotyped, but very entertaining. And oddly enough, the aesthetic changes again soon, with some action set in an authentic Western-style saloon, but with many contemporaneous gizmos like arcade video games, pinball machines, and even a serving of Sloppy Joes being offered. Another couple of sequences relocate the action to some mining caves, where lots of unwashed, overworked, half-naked men are forced to pound rocks all day, all the while being whipped by cowboyish thugs who dispense a mouthful of salt as punishment. So yeah, the tone of the film is all over the place really, but it's an interesting journey all the same. Even fleeting references to other films make it in here, like the Russian roulette sequence for example being very similar stylistically to that scene in The Deer Hunter, while some of the weaponry like Catchdog's multi-barreled laser pistol reappears much later in Bruno Mattai's Rat's Night of Terror. The story narrated in 2020 Texas Gladiators, though, is rather unconventional as these post-apocalyptic action knockoffs go, as it tends to adopt a more spaghetti western-style template, with an evil force entering town and causing havoc, only to be defeated with the arrival of a few strangers who defeat the antagonists before riding off into the sunset. 
Admittedly, the plot is bolstered with cherry-picked elements from the biker-sploitation genre and post-apocalyptic vibes, but that makes the tale all the more interesting, really, especially with the rash aesthetic changes that constantly take you by surprise. The film's opening is set purely in the post-apocalypse niche, but the majority of the film then just focuses on the western storyline, with the bikers taking up the mantle of the bad guys. The film's ending then blends all three threads together to make a tightrope, which is a bit ham-fisted, of course, but when the film is this entertainingly silly, does this really matter? Outside of the novel structure, the story is not too complex either, and it allows for plenty of time for sequences of fun violence, there's some sexual nastiness, and good old 80s trash-talking. So while the plot of a town trying to redeem itself against a savage world and the brutal invaders contained herein, the wide variety of characters does help in propping the film up quite well. Our initial hero, Nexus, is both brooding, brave, and ultimately altruistic, who isn't afraid to mete out some nasty violence against his enemies, but he does have a strong sense of what the right thing to do is. Right from the get-go, he dispatches of violent aggressors and kills a small tribe of vicious murdering savages, indirectly rescuing the innocent Maeda. While he does disagree initially with her pacifistic outlook on life, he nonetheless convinces her of his good nature with his warmth and his smile, before wanting to try her way of peaceful living. This works out quite well, really, as they forge a new life together away from the rangers, and they start a family by having their baby daughter, Katya. Nexus clearly gains respect and trust with the town's inhabitants as a beacon of their community, and his good nature continues to shine through by offering advice as to how to improve their power generation, and even selflessly putting himself in danger to defuse a potentially explosive scenario. The arrival of Black One's minions puts him straight into the offensive, as he leads a frenzied gunfight to repel the marauders. He's injured in the fight, and is then subsequently captured being forced to watch his wife be raped by one of Catchdog's men, breaking his spirit pretty much fully. His next action is seeking out the rapist, whom he blindly tackles to the floor and stabs to death in a berserk rage, which does lead to his death. It's quite honourable, though, that he's willing to die for this, but it is a bit gutting as well that he dies, as he's been a paragon of morals since the film started. His death, however, allows the next sequence of events to happen, but first, we'll just talk about Maida for a little bit. She's quite a vulnerable character at first, requiring some of the expected rescue from our muscle-bound heroes, and she's openly a pacifist, believing that violence and destruction are not the way to go. While this is generally a good trait to have, it clearly gets you nowhere in a horrible film world like this one, as Maida is subject to a few untoward sexual advances, due to her vestal and innocent beauty. She goes through at least two such assaults in the film, and while it would be quite expected that she devolves into a catatonic state or into hysterics, Maida is quite distinctive from the ladies of the last two films that we covered, in that she's really quite tough. She gives her new life a chance with Nexus, she eventually has a child with him, and she proper kicks ass when she's required to, handling a firearm and taking out those who cross her. While she does function as the damsel when the plot requires it, it's just nice that she also gets to take control once in a while, joining the rangers in taking out the trash when her husband dies. Halicron sort of takes the main hero role after Nexus's demise. He certainly seems to lead both Jab and Red Wolf on their mission to rescue Maida and drive out the scum of Freetown. He's also got that brand of honour like Nexus, being the one to actually banish Catchdog, for example, from the rangers when he tries to rape Maida. 
and he's also incredibly daring, braving the game of Russian roulette and causing a massive brawl in an unfamiliar bar in order to save Maida. Jab is the more reckless of the bunch, venturing into dangerous territory and barely scraping by if not for the intervention of others. He likes to show off too, and with a body like his, who can really blame him? He frequently wanders into attacks, he gets himself punished in the mines by defying the guards and running his mouth off at Native Americans enough to invite him to a fight to the death. On most occasions, this gamble pays off, but Jab ultimately pays with his life when his final roll of the dice is not in his favour. Red Wolf is the enigmatic one of the group, with only one line of dialogue that I can actually remember. He spends the majority of the film silently observing and kicking Major Ass with his solid snake approach to taking slime balls out. While initially one of the rangers himself, Catchdog is another interesting character who's not honourable enough for the moral stalwarts of the story. His blatant attempt at raping Maida instantly earns the wrath of his comrades, who banish him from the group. And the next time we see him, he's seeking revenge against Nexus by allying himself with Black One, leading a charge of equally scungy villains to invade the town. He's actually quite a craven antagonist, however, as he seems to only exercise his lust for cruelty when he's in complete control. If the opportunity doesn't arise for him to take advantage of, he cowardly makes an exit and tries to avoid any confrontation. For example, he tries to rape Maida, but is defeated easily by Nexus when he's confronted. His girlfriend later is shot dead by Nexus right in front of him during the initial gunfight, but instead of flying into a fury and attacking his woman's murderer, like Nexus does, he instead beats a quick retreat. Though Maida is ripe for taking when they're recaptured, he ultimately stands by and allows one of his companions to do the deed, presumably because of Nexus's proximity. And later, when the rangers return to liberate the town, he waits for Maida to run out of ammo before emerging to attack her. A real sleazy, slimy piece of work, which is just what you need for this kind of film, really. Black One, however, while certainly looking the part of a villain with his not-too-subtle impression of a Nazi commander, is a little too goofy and guffawing to be a credible threat. His soldiers, with their thermodynamic escutcheons, look way more threatening, though they're funnily defeated by simple primitive weapons of arrows and spears, due to the obvious hole in their shields. The demises of these antagonists, though, are just as delightful as their portrayals, as the film does seem to echo the poetic justice of the Western template. The majority of loose ends being tied up are later during the Native American and the Ranger takeover of Freetown, where Joretta Joretta's character is shot dead trying to steal from her fellow bikers. The large gay burly man is stabbed in the gut by Red Wolf, only to then be shot in the face by an old woman whose grandson was molested and killed by him. And finally, the voluptuous woman is shot dead by Halicron, bringing justice to every innocent person that was killed earlier. Going on to the violence in general, the film is not overtly gory, but it does have a frequent brutality about it that at least makes up for some of the slower patches in the film's runtime. The film's opening is probably the most brutal, with some eyes gouged out with an axe, some various stabbings, explosive shootings, throat slashings and fisticuffs galore. Later, the more melee-based mayhem is toned down, but it's replaced with some pretty impressive gunslinging. The editing is pretty nice, the violence is brutal, and even Maida gets to kick a bit of ass. There's a smattering of sexual violence in the film, but thankfully it's kept to a fairly subdued style that fails to spoil the otherwise jocular tone to the movie. It's campy, it's silly, it's brutal, it's cheesy, it's stereotypical macho bullshit, but you've got to love it, really. 
Fans of this avenue of exploitation film should at least add this to your checklist of Mad Max knockoffs to watch soon. It's not a shining beacon of cinematic prowess by any means, but it's hardly the bottom of the barrel e-jester either. Al Cliver played the main role of Nexus, whom we've encountered before in a handful of films, namely The Damned and The House of Clocks. He also made appearances in four video nasties overall, including The Beyond, Devil Hunter, Cannibal, and Zombie Flesh Eaters. Today, Cliver lives in Bali as the manager of several holiday villas. Jab was played by actor Harrison Muller, who appeared in The Throne of Fire and Warrior of the Lost World alongside Donald Pleasance. Antagonist Catchdog was played by American model Daniel Stephen, who's worked as almost everything really under the sun, such as working construction, architectural design, a film company president, and even taught martial arts at one point. He eventually got work as a model for various companies, such as McDonald's, Volvo, Panasonic, and even huge clothing labels like Versace, Gucci, and Yves Saint Laurent. His film career was quite short-lived, but he's been in a handful of Italian exploitation flicks like Warriors of the Lost World, Maladonna, Warbus, and Three Supermen in Santa Domingo. Halicron was played by American actor Peter Hooten, who'd appeared in the TV movie Night of Terror from 1972 before going on to The Waltons, 1977's Orca, Enzo G. Castellari's Inglorious Bastards, and 1990's Night Killer. Hal Yamanouchi, who played Red Wolf, was literally mentioned on the last episode as the Rat Eater King, from 2019 after the fall of New York. The Vestal-looking Maeda was played by actress and model Sabrina Siani, who had the dubious distinction of being dubbed as the stupidest actress that Jess Franco had ever worked with. She starred alongside Al Cliver in Jess Franco's video nasty Cannibal, and she also had a very fleeting background role in the equally nasty Cannibal Terror. She also had a non-speaking role in Fulci's Enigma as a student, and she's had another couple of appearances in Italian sword and sandal movies, Eitor the Fighting Eagle, and Fulci's Conquest. Ketzia, one of Catchdog's biker gang, presumably the voluptuous one, was played by Isabella Rocchietta, who also had a brief role in Michele Soavi's The Church, while Giretta Giretta, whom we've seen before in Rat's Night of Terror and Shocking Dark, played one of the unnamed bikers. Donald O'Brien, whom we've seen before in Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, Ghost House and Hands of Steel, played the Nazi-ish role of Black One, while Maurizio Streccioni, who played Eyepatch, popped up occasionally in other exploitation films like Fulci's White Fang, Almost Human, Black Emmanuel, Nightmare City, Violence in a Women's Prison and Exterminators of the Year 3000. We've of course encountered director Joe D'Amato before as well, when we've looked at his sexploitation and cannibalistic entries like Papaya Love Goddess of the Cannibals, Black Orgasm and Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals. He's usually known for his vast copybook of softcore and hardcore erotic adult films, but he has occasionally and memorably dabbled in other areas too, like Splatter, Slasher, Post-Apocalypse and even Sword and Sandal movies. George Eastman also helped direct a significant chunk of the film, who was a frequent collaborator with D'Amato and a recognisable actor from various films we've covered, like Hands of Steel, Bronx Warriors, Stage Fright and 2019 After the Fall of New York. He also wrote the film in tandem with Aldo Florio, who'd had a small directing career before collaborating with D'Amato later on this film and the other film this week, Endgame. 
D'Amato also produced the film himself and performed the role of cinematographer on the picture as well, whilst the music was done by Carlo Maria Cordio, whom we've previously encountered before on Shocking Dark, Enigma, Killing Birds, Pieces and Witchcraft. He also worked on Joe D'Amato's slasher Nasty, Absurd, and the Supernatural Section 3 film Superstition. Finally, the assistant director on the film was Michele Soavi, who's been a regular recurring face on the Nasty Pasty from stuff like Alien Terror, New York Ripper, City of the Living Dead, and many others. 2020 Texas Gladiators ran into a few issues upon initial release, mainly because the film was completed and ready for cinematic exhibition, but it failed to properly pass the Italian censor board until 1984, a whole two years after the production was wrapped. This meant that its initial release in 1982 was much smaller than anticipated, so its subsequent export to other European countries was also similarly limited. It reached US shores in 1983 and was shown in the rest of Europe in 1984. It skipped the UK entirely and instead went straight to the booming video market where it was picked up by small distributor Filmtown. They initially tried to release it in April of 1984 under the original title of 2020 Texas Gladiators, but the release fell through for unknown reasons. Instead, the company took a year's hiatus on the picture and eventually released it uncut in April of 1985 under the title 2020 Freedom Fighters. This was in the midst of the Nasties' panic, but the video recordings at 1984 was already passed and was merely waiting to become effective as of September 85. Therefore, the film had a very brief window where it was available for UK audiences to see it, but it became illegal after September due to the VRA being re-enacted. The film hasn't surfaced in the UK since either, so this is one of those films that's been permanently affected by circumstances surrounding its release. It's a shame really, as it's not such a bad film at all. It just needs someone to give it a chance. So, that was 2020 Texas Gladiators. Now let's mosey on over to our other entry this week, Endgame. And no, I don't mean the new Avengers movie. In 2025, within a dilapidated, rat-infested underground of the Bronx in New York, 
A young woman called Lilith hides from sinister-looking soldiers, the security service, who are searching out mutants, shooting any that they encounter for fear of contamination. Above the ground, the remaining population is gearing up for another round of Endgame, a game show broadcast all over the world involving hunters and their prey held within the ruins of New York City. One such champion, known as Ron Shannon, is competing again for the 23rd consecutive time, having won every year for the last seven years. This time, however, he is the prey, to be hunted by three prolific hunters, including Woody Aldridge, Gabe Mantrax and Kurt Karnak. As Shannon is let go to hide out in the city as the game starts, members of the regime in charge assure each other of the efficiency of the games in getting rid of problematic rebels. Lilith wanders the darkened tunnels of the city and encounters some mutant scavengers who pursue her, until she's rescued by Shannon. Lilith reveals that she's been sent to find him to offer him a well-paid job, but he refuses and then leaves her alone. Meanwhile, another large group of mutants are exterminated by the security service as the hunters begin to track Shannon down, entering the city's underground. Hiding away, Shannon begins to toy with the hunters, tricking Aldridge into wasting his ammo, resulting in a melee fight. As Aldridge tries to kill him with a spiked mace, Shannon outsmarts him and stabs him in the back, killing him. As he heads into a new section of the city, he's ambushed by Mantrax who viciously beats him with his fists. Feigning unconsciousness, Shannon eventually gets the jump on Mantrax, karate chopping him hard in the neck and instantly killing him. As Karnak has Shannon cornered, Lilith appears again and offers her help. Revealing that she's psychic, Lilith telepathically informs Shannon of what she wants, an escort to help her and a few other mutants to cross the outer limits of the city, with Shannon as a guide and protector. When he agrees to her terms, she warns him stealthily that Karnak is passing by, allowing him to get the drop on his adversary. As the two come to blows, Endgame reporters and the cameramen get near the pair, waiting for the final blow. Shannon manages to throw Karnak from a height and has him held at knife point, but he ultimately spares him from death. Shannon is crowned the winner, but instantly leaves when Lilith messages him for help. She's saved when Shannon kills the two SS guards that are capturing her, and the pair travel to her hideout, where they discover the bodies of the murdered mutants. There are two survivors, Professor Levin and Tommy, who's also a child mutant. Levin offers Shannon a large sum of gold for the job, which seems to convince him, while Karnak is approached by Colonel Morgan of the SS, who indicates his knowledge of Lilith and Shannon's escape. Shannon visits his old friend, Bull, who runs a gym of martial artists, to obtain some men for the dangerous journey. Recommending a fighter called Ninja, Shannon also recruits a large gang member called Kovacs and a highly reflexive agent called Kijawa from a bar. Soon after assembling his team, Shannon is confronted by Morgan, but is then rescued by Karnak, who now deems them equal. Collecting all of the mutant escapees, the team heads out of the city via underground cloisters and bundles into a large truck. Appointed a driver called Stark, the convoy reaches the desert outside the city limits where the group discovers a variety of dead mutants, some of which are simian or fish-like. Coming across a cluster of buildings, Shannon, Kijawa, Kovacs and Ninja scout out the area to ensure that it's safe to bypass only to encounter a blinded religious figure in a black cloak. While initially claiming that he means the men no harm, countless other blind figures surround the group and eventually draw swords out, attacking the men. 
Contacting Lilith telepathically, she reveals that another telepathic mutant is transmitting what they can see to the blind men, forcing Shannon to attempt to reach the mutant inside one of the buildings. Ninja, Kovacs and Kajawa hold the men off above ground, while Stark is killed in the crossfire. The telepathic is eventually located in one of the buildings by Shannon and killed using a battle axe, rendering the men blind once more. After they escape to safety, Shannon witnesses Lilith with Tommy, who's able to levitate rocks with his mind, unaware that Karnak is also watching them from a distance. Soldiering on, the convoy reaches a village of apparently dead wastelanders, only for Lilith to hurriedly warn the group that it's a trap. Professor Levin is killed in the subsequent attack, but the revelation that the group is carrying a load of mutants with them causes friction with Kovacs and Bull. Suddenly, Karnak appears and verifies that the mission is indeed worth it, just as countless mutant gangs arrive on vehicles to confront the intruders in their territory. A huge gunfight ensues, with Bull taking control of a turret gun to keep their attackers at bay. Lilith is kidnapped in the kerfuffle and Ninja is stabbed in the back, while Karnak allies himself with the group to escape the carnage. Shannon becomes cornered by many of the mutant gang members until Ninja rescues him by ploughing a booby-trapped vehicle into the horde, killing himself and the rest of the attackers. Heading back to the van, Shannon discovers Kovacs and Kajawa's dead bodies, whilst Karnak makes a deal with him to help the group in exchange for some of the gold. Meanwhile, Lilith is restrained by her kidnapper, who's a large fish mutant, and is eventually raped by him as she warns Shannon of Karnak's real intentions of killing him once he has the gold. Sneaking into the lair of Lilith's kidnapper, Shannon successfully frees Lilith and murders the fish mutant as he sleeps. Karnak, however, spots a man encased in concrete who pleads for death, but the resultant blood flow wakes a sleeping mutant up, alerting the group and trapping Karnak in the hideout. Lilith and Shannon escape, returning to Bull and heading on to the rendezvous point. Reaching their final destination, the mutants await rescue only for Colonel Morgan and a group of SS guards to arrive on the scene, with murder on their minds. Bull is shot dead and Shannon is held at gunpoint by Morgan, who telepathically asks Lilith for help. Suggesting that Tommy can help with his powers, the little boy creates a huge psychokinetic storm that envelops their captors. He causes the turret gun to open fire on many of the soldiers, a landslide to bury others, lifting the truck and crushing some, and finally forcing Colonel Morgan to turn the gun on himself, killing him instantly. The mutants then rejoice as their helicopter arrives to take them away to safety, with Shannon rejecting Lilith's offer of going with them. Leaving his box of gold behind as payment, Shannon is then interrupted by Karnak, who challenges him to another duel for the gold as the prize. Getting their knives out ready, the pair clash as the film ends. Endgame is here again. That great international sport, a grand tradition since it was started back in 2012, can be followed on your video contactors in any corner of this planet. The zone chosen for the event lies between 22nd and 33rd Street in the port area. The game is slated to start in about 20 minutes and will end at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. The three hunters will therefore have 12 hours to track down their prey. In this case, Ron Shannon. Now, this is the seventh time that Endgame champion Shannon has volunteered to be the prey, after competing successfully 22 times as the hunter. Although Shannon is reputed to be unbeatable, the odds are slightly against him, maybe because luck eventually runs out for everyone, even for one of the game's all-time greats. 
Each player is allowed to carry one firearm and two other weapons of his own choice. Anyone found with additional weapons is automatically disqualified. As you know, the prey has the option of surrendering if he's still undiscovered after the first six hours. But if he chooses to do so, he is penalized by the loss of points in the championship standings and is not eligible for start money. Ron Shannon has never surrendered. So tonight's event promises to be an epic encounter and one that will keep us all glued to our screens well into the AM of tomorrow. And now, an important question. Do you know the favorite food of endgame champions? Hmm. It's Life Plus. The high-protein energy tablet that tones up your body fibers and maintains your sexual press. Be a man among men. Buy Life Plus. Well, well. There's a hell of a lot of similarities between Endgame and 2020 Texas Gladiators. Apart from the obvious that it's another post-apocalyptic action flick from Joe D'Amato that features Al Cliver in a main role, Endgame is similarly a bizarre hodgepodge of different tones, aesthetics and plotlines that culminates in a frequently strange but bloody entertaining piece of rubbish. Nothing like this will win awards now, then or even ever. But what more can one ask for other than a bit of evening entertainment? The film starts off with quite a bleak image of post-apocalyptic New York. Completely drenched in a pervasive darkness, the streets and underground passages of the Bronx are suitably grimy to establish this future as particularly downtrodden. Rotten corpses litter the area, scavengers rummage around in steel drums and piles of garbage, and rats skitter across the ground. It's none too original, but it is effective as are the very Nazi-like security service officers, with German helmets, face coverings, and large flowing trench coats that comb the area for mutants, flamethrower and machine guns at the ready. There's certainly more than a smidgen reminiscent of the antagonists from the previous film, but I guess if it looks like a Nazi and quacks like a Nazi, then you've got yourself an instant set of villains. I mean, even calling them the security service and giving them an SS logo is fairly heavy-handed even for the Italians. But there you have it. This penumbra of dour hopes and shattered humanity is only punctuated, apparently, with Endgame, a popular TV show that depicts a competition to the death between three hunters and one person who's deemed as prey. This section of the film is actually quite well-developed, such as having an actual set of rules, including each entrant has access to one firearm and two other weapons of choice. Anything over means disqualification, and the person that's dubbed as the prey gets a six-hour head start to hide somewhere in the depths of the Bronx's alleyways. All the action is apparently captured using the city's vast network of cameras and broadcast onto TVs all around the world, making it one of the only distractions that this bleak world has. And in true Blade Runner style, the show is sponsored heavily by a fictional product known as Life Plus. Apparently, it tones up your fibres and maintains your sexual prowess. While this element is hammed up and used to the extreme, it also smacks of familiarity as most TV shows and popular culture medias today are actually sponsored by a product of some kind, shoving it in our faces almost all the time. If the spectacle of Endgame is sounding familiar, it probably is. The show's format and style is almost perfectly lifted from Stephen King's novel The Running Man, which was released only one year prior. Though the more glitzy and colourful film version with Arnold Schwarzenegger was still a few years from being done, D'Amato decided to cherry-pick most of the elements from King's source material, including the year that the film is set in, 2025, the reference to the Hunters, and even the reference to prize money and betting on the winner. 
Again, while not original, the setup is pretty damn good. But rather surprisingly, the endgame section of the film is not the majority of the film's plot. After Lilith's influence on Shannon's victory, the film then becomes more of a mix of the Warriors and Mad Max, with a variety of fighters banding together to make it to another area that's very far away, where both the location and the characters become remarkably different. Gone is the totalitarian darkness of an oppressed hellish city, and it's in with the scruffy stretches of desert, abandoned buildings, and survivors of a harsh, irradiated climate, including a menagerie of animal-like mutants. It's not necessarily a killing blow to the film's effectiveness, as there's still plenty of fun to be had, but it's just that the more cinematographically interesting setting and the plot of the film plays second fiddle to the main chunk, which is a bit more generic in terms of its execution. It becomes a full-length escort mission, pretty much, after this point, with gunplay, melee fights and travelling all intertwined with a wider variety of eccentric characters. Compared to the quick-paced action of the film's first half hour, the rest of the film slows down a bit comparatively, and it ends on a Mad Max vibe of our brooding hero choosing to wander the wastelands forever instead of leaving with the girl. Quite typical, I guess. But it does lead to a funny Rocky Three style ending where the two fighters engage just as the screen freezes. Let's move on to the characters, who are just as varied as 2020 Texas Gladiators' Band of Merry Men. Our stony-faced hero, Shannon, is a little more subdued than the openly altruistic nexus of the previous film. While Al Cliver plays the pair of them, his performance as Shannon is notably more muted. And I'm unsure whether this is purposeful, or if it's because Cliver was just a little bored. Regardless, his resting bitch face rivals that of Snake Plissken in John Carpenter's film, and it's a bit harder as a result to get behind him when he seems so detached. His rival, Kurt Karnak, is by comparison much more engaging as a villain. Apart from George Eastman's incredibly imposing screen presence, he hams up the villainy and insane laughter to be much more endearing as characters go, and despite his function as an antagonist, he shows off a much more human side by allying himself with the main characters when faced with a common enemy. This neutrality in regards to his loyalties is sort of explained by the fact that he and Shannon have a past together, but unfortunately this thread is all but abandoned in the film's script, giving us hardly anything to go on really with the exception of mentioning that they were childhood friends. Shannon's two other opponents in Endgame are given so much description, but they barely make up for Eastman's charisma in his single role. Woody Aldridge, for example, is described as strong as an ox and as agile as a cat, but his skill with the spiked mace leaves a lot to be desired. His costume is at least fun, with golden animal-like patterns, jewellery and spiked pauldrons. The silent Gabe Mantrax is described as a mere martial arts instructor, and despite being able to dish out a terrific volley of punches and slaps, he succumbs quite quickly to a carotid artery karate chop from Shannon. Lilith is the deuterogonist of the film, dressed in slightly Middle Eastern garb, and she's the token female of the group. She's not given as much action to do as Maida is, for example, in the previous film, but she's also not as in distress either, with the exception of one scene where she's kidnapped. It's not exactly fair, though, to criticise her for this lack of action, as it's actually part of the plot at hand. She's a mutant, with the power of being able to telepathically read the minds of those around her, and for this reason she's unable to handle killing another person for the trauma that it would cause her telepathically. Instead, she aids Shannon by communicating with him various times whenever the group encounters danger. 
which is pretty silly really, but you run with it anyway. In the one scene of kidnapping, Lilith is raped by a fish-like mutant, which is much more sleazily filmed than normal, but it's also rather inexplicit at the same time. It does speak volumes, however, that Lilith is communicating with Shannon at the time of her assault, and she remains completely stoic during it, not even revealing the ordeal to Shannon. Both women who undergo this horrendous act in both films are tremendously brave and strong for their drive to survive beyond it, and while it's not entirely consistent with real-life reactions, it's at least endearing to see the films not victimise the women any further and reduce them to incapable people. For the journey to the mutant's rendezvous point, Shannon assembles a group of strangers to help him escort his payload, and they're a real mixed bunch of people, one of which is Bull, seemingly an old friend of Shannon's. He runs a gymnasium for people to practice martial arts, though they all seem strangely to be practicing gunslinging poses as well. Bull wears an eye patch and is generally a reliable guy, especially as he commonly mans the vehicle's turret gun. Another guy, lazily named Ninja because he's Asian, stealthy and is skilled at using his fists and blades, also joins the team and he's pretty much the same character as Red Wolf from the previous film, even being played by the same guy. He sacrifices himself to rescue Shannon from the encroaching mutants by driving a flaming car into the crowd, so I mean, kudos to him for that. Kovacs is another ally, but despite his imposing figure and perceived strength, his outfit feels a little bit like it's from another movie, like a sword and sandal one, perhaps. Or maybe even a cheap 80s version of Game of Thrones. Still, it's good to see a bit of body variety in these action flicks, and while he's not the nicest guy due to his unpleasant bigotry towards mutants, Kovacs' chubby body is no hindrance to the fact that he can actually kick ass. A more confusing addition to the team, though, is Kajawa, whose main skill is meant to be his lightning-quick reflexes, which he demonstrates in the bar. But apart from this, and only one additional scene later, he doesn't really credibly portray this well-versed physicality, and he's actually more memorable for his wrist-mounted crossbow that he uses. Other minor characters like Stark and Professor Levin are nowhere near as interesting as the other larger personalities in the film. Even the main antagonist, Colonel Morgan, feels a little more than a figurehead, especially as he gets his ass kicked by Shannon very early in the film, deposing him instantly as a credible threat. One exception to these blander characters is the little boy Tommy, who can give Luke Skywalker a run for his money in his skill of levitating rocks with his mind powers. Tommy even takes centre stage in the film's hokey but fun ending sequence of a telekinetic storm which kills all of the SS soldiers. I mean, it's not the music video to David Guetta's Titanium, but the sequence of soldiers getting crushed by polystyrene rocks, burned with flames and shredded with machine guns is marvellously endearing to witness nonetheless. The forced shooting of Colonel Morgan is particularly amusing, as the performance is just so over the top. The characters are not the only charming elements to the movie, however. Apart from quite decently staged melee fights and ass-kickery, the mutants in the film are also pretty varied, with some resembling Planet of the Apes, a la 2019 after the fall of New York, and some of them bear metallic fish gills and scales. They're little more than fodder, of course, for the film's action sequences, but they're fun to see all the same. So too are the blinded monks who use a mutant to telepathically telegraph their attacks against our heroes. It's quite flimsy as a plot point, but it does give us a decent sequence of fighting these unique-looking antagonists. 
as well as a bloody and funny ending when Shannon kills the tattling mutant with a battle axe to the head. I mean, he's transporting mutants, so he's clearly sympathetic to their plight, but after seeing a mutant in chains being abused by blind monks, it does nothing to elicit any kindness, only earning him a wordless death. The sequence of rescuing Lilith also has a strange Star Wars vibe to it, with a prisoner dying slowly whilst cemented into a wall, very similar to the image of Han Solo being encased in carbonite. Karnak, of course, can't bear to see the guy suffer, and ever so slowly twists his neck, breaking the prisoner's head off agonisingly slow. Smooth. In conclusion, Endgame is just as uniquely formulated as your average anti-aging cream, but unlike the faux eliteness of such a product, it's just simply a fun ride wrought from a massively low budget. It's got the charm, it's got the violence, the peculiar set design, and the sheer outrageousness of post-apocalyptic 80s fiction. I'm probably going to be seeking this one out a lot more than I care to admit. Like the previous film this week, Al Cliver plays the main character Shannon, so we won't talk about him too much. George Eastman also plays his rival in this film, Kurt Karnak, but we've seen Eastman quite often on this podcast as well, such as on the last episode's films Bronx Warriors, 2019 After the Fall of New York, and some of the others as well, like Stage Fright, Hands of Steel, etc. etc. Laura Gemser plays the role of Lilith, she, of course, was the gorgeous sex siren who starred prominently in the Black Emmanuel series. We spotted her previously in Violence in a Woman's Prison and Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals. And for once, this is one of those odd movies where her nakedness is actually not featured too much. Dino Conti played the role of Professor Levin, who'd been in Antonio Margariti's Spaghetti Warm video Nasty, The Last Hunter, later showing up in 1984's Devilfish, and even 2016's Inferno. Another recurring face from the previous film is Hal Yamanuchi, who here played the basically named Ninja, while Laura Gemps's real-life husband, Gabrielle Tinti, played the role of Bull. We've seen him mainly in the films that his wife is involved in, such as the aforementioned Violence in a Women's Prison and Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals. The portly Kovacs was played by actor Mario Padoni, who also appeared in 1982's Blue Island and 1983's Warrior of the Lost World. Colonel Morgan was played by American actor Gordon Mitchell, who forged his career in biblical sword and sandal epics in the 50s and 60s before going into exploitation movies in the 70s. He's appeared in stuff like Akdung, The Desert Tigers, Emmanuel, Queen Bitch, and Treasure of the Lost Desert. Nello Pazzafini played Kajawa, who'd been in a multitude of Italian low-budget films before and afterwards, such as Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Almost Human, The Video Nasty Street Killers, Contraband, You're the Hunter from the Future, Iron Master, and also The Alcove. Stark was played by stuntsman Franco Uckmar, who'd played various background roles in The Big Racket, Zombie Holocaust, Caligula, The Untold Story, and even 2020 Texas Gladiators. Aldridge was played by the very recognisable Bobby Rhodes, who played the infamous pimp from Lamberto Barva's Demons. He's also been in various other cult movies as well, like the sequel Demons 2, Video Nasty, The Last Hunter, The Great Alligator, and Island of Mutations. Alberto Dell'Aqua played the small non-speaking role of Gabe Mantrax, who'd done other various bit parts in Zombie Flesh Eaters and Zombie Flesh Eaters 3. 
At the film's ending, one of the helicopter pilots is played by Michele Soavi, one of the recurring faces here on the podcast, while one of the unnamed torture victims was played by actress Dina Maroney, who ended up as an ADR voice actor and a general voice actor on films like the remake of Psycho, Spider-Man, Meet the Fockers, 2012, Avatar, Madagascar 3, Ted, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, Assassin's Creed 3, John Wick 2, 2018's Halloween, Aquaman, Velvet Buzzsaw and Alita Battle Angel. Joe D'Amato again directed this film of course, And similarly to 2020 Texas Gladiators, he produced the film, did the cinematography, and wrote the film in tandem with Aldo Florio. Similarly, the music was done again by Carlo Maria Cordio, and the assistant director was Michele Soavi again. The special effects were done by three chaps, James Davis, Robert Gold, and Peter Gray. But only Robert Gold returned on any other projects, such as The Alcove and Michele Soavi's slasher, Stage fright. The only other person of note, really, was Ophelia Garcia, who assisted with the directing. She later worked as a casting agent for Michele Soavi's Cemetery Man, and she worked as a production secretary on Lamberto Barva's A Blade in the Dark. Compared to D'Amato's previous filmography, Endgame received a much more subtle and subdued release across Europe, receiving a brief theatrical release in November of 1983. It was exported then onto video in 1984 to most other countries, except the UK, who got an extradited VHS copy arriving from VTC in December of 83. As it had skipped the UK cinemas, though, this was the first time that the UK public had gotten their mitts on the film. But of course, the video nasty debacle was in full swing. VTC were already under close scrutiny for their release of multiple video nasties, so it may have been them airing on the side of caution, but the company eventually recalled the copies of Endgame and made some pre-cuts to some of the violent material before re-releasing them. Of course, not every copy was returned, so both uncut and slightly truncated versions were distributed at the same time. Endgame was ignored anyway during the raids as far as I can gather, and the film disappeared completely in the wake of the Video Recordings Act as well. The film did, however, get a new submission in 1986 from Stable Kane for a new VHS release, but due to the increased caution exercised by the BBFC, they made 41 seconds of cuts to the material, removing the majority of Lilith's rape scene, Karnak's neck-breaking of the man in concrete, and Shannon plunging the battle-axe into a mutant's head. This, sadly, is the only legitimate version of the film that's been released in the country so far, so any fans of this little schlockfest will have to import the film from other territories. There's various DVD releases in Europe and the US if you want them, and after just having a quick look, they seem quite cheap.
that's the end of the show for another week, appreciative audience of mine. Thanks ever so much for dropping in on the show. It's much appreciated, and I hope that you enjoyed listening to these films as much as I loved covering them. Has anyone seen these films? Would you see them? And get in touch with me on Facebook and Twitter if you want to let me know. I'm always available for talking about horror films or exploitation in general, so hit me up if you have an opinion that differs to mine, because I don't bite really. Now that our two weeks of post-apocalyptic action is over, Nasty Pasty is entering the final phase of proceedings before I sadly hang up the recording devices for the foreseeable future. That's right, folks, there's only four episodes to go before the end is in sight. So to that end, I'm cranking up the nastiness full blast for a final ferocious four weeks, with more extreme themes until I say goodbye. We're kicking off the controversy next week with two necrophilia films featuring obscene nasty movies depicting vile sexual interaction with corpses and rotten cadavers. Ready your stomach and get the sick bags at the ready for 1987's Necromantic and 1986's Looker the Necrophagus. Until next week's sexual foulness, you can enter the Nasty Pasty competition that I've got going on Twitter and Facebook. Simply retweet or share the post in question and give it a like as well and you'll immediately be entered to win a Video Nasty starter pack. This includes Dario Argento's Suspiria, Toby Hooper's Death Trap, or Eaten Alive as it's known in the US, and finally Abel Ferrara's Driller Killer. All three are on DVD, and they're region two I'm afraid, so you might need a multi-region DVD player if you live in the US or outside of Europe. All three of these films were either on the DPP's banned list of naughties or the supplementary section three list. So if you want to get into this era of film history, these three are as good a place to start as any. And they're all fully uncut, of course, so there's no need to worry about missing any material. And the competition ends on Monday the 29th of April, so jump right on it. Don't fret if you miss out, though, however, as there's two additional competitions with prizes coming up in the next week. So just keep your eyes peeled. Until then, however, look after your collective selves, and Nasty Pasty will return in one week's time. Fare thee well, 